0: Like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Welcome. Uh, as has been alluded to already, we're out of First Kings. Uh, we're hitting the pause button on that series. We hope, Lord willing, to go back to it at some point uh, in the in the not too distant future. Uh, but we are beginning this week our journey through First Timothy. So I invite you to turn to First Timothy. First Timothy one. Uh, one through eleven. Let's hear God's Word together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, in Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We come to You through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we confess, God, that You are love. In accordance with Your Word, we confess that God is love. We see the depths of Your love revealed in the coming of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us even to the point of offering His life for us. Heavenly Father, we love You because You first loved us. And we confess that we fall short of the high and holy calling to love others as we have been loved. We confess that we are often selfish, preoccupied with our own interests and desires, and not considerate of those around us. Forgive us, Father, for the sake of your son, Jesus, and cleanse us. Father, we want to be like you, sons and daughters of the living God. And so we pray, that you would teach us to love. Grant us to be a people marked by sacrificial service to those around them. Grant us to increasingly ripen in our love for you and for one another. And we ask, gracious Father, that you, you would be pleased to bless the proclamation of your word this morning as a means to that end. Amen. Well, I've noted that we are starting a new series. We're starting. To work through the uh, letter, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And one of the distinctive features of this book in the New Testament is it's um, all that it has to teach us about the church. It gives us significant insight into what we call uh, ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, one of its distinctive emphases. It is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, to his student, disciple, protege, Timothy, whom he describes as his true child in the faith. He describes him this way because Paul, in many respects, has been responsible for Timothy's uh, spiritual formation. Uh, He has been responsible for forming Timothy into the pastor and church leader that he has become. And so there is this familial language, he's my true child in the faith. And indeed, Paul will go on in this letter to describe all the relationships among believers in familial categories, brothers, sisters, fathers, and so on. And um, <clears> that that is the way that we should look at one another as God's people. Having been redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is writing the letter to Timothy, and the... Uh, the most important passage for determining the purpose of the letter is First Timothy 3:14 through15. There, Paul writes, Timothy: um, "I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God." I hope to come soon, but just in case I'm not able to, I'm writing these things. I'm writing this letter. Uh, So that you will know what a properly ordered church looks like. And so, Paul talks about gathered worship, what that looks like, uh, church offices, uh, the office of elder overseer, and the office of deacon, and qualifications for those offices. He talks about how to care for widows in the congregation, how to deal with different categories of people in the church. Uh, He gives instructions to servants. And uh, he tells Timothy throughout the letter how he ought to conduct himself as a leader in the church, as a pastor. So this letter has a great deal to show us about what a healthy church looks like and what faithful Christian ministry looks like as well. That's why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And here in the opening section, we see, and this shouldn't surprise us, should it, if you were with us through uh, 2 Peter and Jude. Uh, you see that one of the essential functions of the church is to confront, challenge, and correct error. Paul in this letter describes the church as a pillar and buttress of truth. The church is is a beacon of truth and light in a world full of error. And for it to contend positively for the truth, it must on occasion contend against error. And that's at the heart of Paul's instructions to Timothy in this opening section of the letter. We're going to note three things this morning as we look at this opening section. Uh, number one, the need to correct error. The need to correct error. Two, the wrong way to use Scripture. The wrong way to use Scripture this is a good way as we'll see and a bad way. Uh, and three, the aim of correction is love. The aim of correction is love. So need for correction, need to correct error, but the aim is love. So uh, here's Paul's charge to Timothy, verse 3. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, a place near Greece, uh, to remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons, command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It seems like every place you turn in the New Testament, uh, you have this motif of contending against error, and this is no different here. Timothy, stay in Ephesus, and what you need to do is, you know the people, they're not named here by name, but they know who they are. You need to go to these people, and you need to command them to stop espousing error and things that contradict the truth of the gospel. Tell them to knock it off. Tell them, verse 4, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. I don't know what exotic species of error this is. Uh, Myths suggest fables, legends, stories not rooted in fact but in fiction. Uh, They're interested in all sorts of falsehoods, devoting time and attention. They're they're interested in endless genealogies. Uh, Again, the exact nature of the error is not entirely clear we do know that there are Jewish writings from this period uh, which do attempt to fill in certain gaps in the biblical record. Certain gaps in biblical genealogies like those we find in Genesis. Uh, So you have some writings giving us the names of all of the children of Adam and Eve. Never mind that scripture doesn't. There is a kind of interest among Jews at this time in certain pockets of Judaism in this kind of speculation Filling in biblical gaps, making up genealogies, speculating about this kind of thing. And it may be that this sort of error is in view. But the important thing is not the exact nature of the error. It's, at least for our purposes, it's the consequences of this kind of error. By devoting themselves to this, these things, they're devoting themselves to these useless speculations. Multiplying hypotheses about things that don't matter. Instead of doing what? These things promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What they should be busy with is advancing the work of God. They should be carrying out God's program, God's will. They should be doing God's work which is energized by faith, not getting distracted, <clears throat> excuse me, not getting distracted with these speculations about genealogies and myths and so on. Paul is telling Timothy that he has to contend against these errors, uh, not, be, not simply because they're wrong at the level of theory, but by being, long at the, being wrong theoretically, uh, they're creating really harmful, practical consequences. Bad ideas produce bad consequences. This kind of misguided dedication to myth, uh, myths and genealogies uh, is leading people astray from the, the work that God has for them. It's a distraction. And this underscores the way that doctrinal error and wrong thinking can be an impediment to practical obedience. We tend to separate these two things, don't we? There's doctrine, there's truth, there's practical obedience, and we don't see often a connection between these two things. But Paul is saying you need to correct them precisely because wrong thinking gets in the way of righteous living, and uh, living for Jesus. And we pursue truth, not simply for the sake of truth and knowing all the answers, we pursue truth that we might better worship God and more fully obey Him. So this error is pernicious, it's harmful, because it's getting in the way of the calling that God has given to them, the, the work that God has given to them. Let me read verse 3 again, Paul's charge to Timothy, and, for, and as I read it, Think about how your neighbor, contemporary non-Christian person, might hear this admonition. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. How does that command fall on modern ears? co-workers, colleagues, neighbors? What would be the response of many people? Oof, that's very bigoted. That's very narrow. We know as enlightened moderns uh, that the sophisticated person, the enlightened person, the broad-minded person accepts and affirms all perspectives about God. Says yes to all of them. And this kind of thing that happens in the church where you shut down certain, certain ways of thinking about God. Well, these are horribly bigoted ways of thinking, very narrow. All claims about God and beliefs about God are equally valid. Paul is being very narrow, and that's the trouble with you Christians, isn't it? And, and this, you get sort of a diluted version of this in the church, don't you? Where Christians begin to wonder if all of these doctrinal differences are really anything more than just, swapping opinions about things we can't know all doctrinal disagreements are basically disagreements about opinion we need to not bother ourselves with all of that we just need to get along and do good all right we see this attitude in, even in the church well what's wrong with this way of thinking the idea that we should be broad-minded and affirming of all perspectives well one basic problem with this whole approach is that it basically denies The fact that God is known or knowable. It denies that God is known or knowable. You can affirm all opinions and perspectives when you don't know the answer. If nobody knows the truth, then your guess is as good as my guess. But when we think that way, we've basically agreed that truth isn't knowable. C.S. Lewis observes in one of his novels, there are a dozen views about everything until you know the answer then there's never more than one. You can allow a variety of contradictory affirmations to exist precisely because you believe that your guess is as good as mine, we can't know the truth, God's not knowable, and then so who cares? All claims are equally valid because God isn't known and knowable. Uh, Think of it this way. Imagine for a moment that you are a real fan of Sedona. One of the perks of living in Phoenix, right? Right? Sedona is two hours away. You're a real Sedona enthusiast. You know, you're intimately acquainted with the red rocks, with the trees, with the creek, um, with the hikes. And as you're walking through a coffee shop one day, you overhear a group of friends talking about Sedona. Your ears perk up. And one says, yeah, in Sedona, there's this creek that runs through Sedona. And the other one says, oh, no, 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 there's no creek. It's all barren desert. Now, notice what you wouldn't do in that situation, being a broad-minded modern. Oh, both perspectives are valid. Right? You wouldn't say that. Why wouldn't you say that? Because you've been there, you've seen it, you know the truth. You'd say, OK, that's definitely wrong because I saw it, I know how things stand, and this is right. When you know the truth, you discriminate between falsehood, error on the one hand, and truth and what is factual on the other. As God's people, we can't say all perspectives are equally valid because we believe God has made himself known in Christ. Look at verse 11. Look at what Paul says. When he speaks of the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners, it is the gospel about or centered on the glory of the blessed God. Where do we see the majesty, greatness, and wisdom of God displayed? We see the glory, the the brightness, the radiance of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is Scripture that bears witness to the display of that glory in Jesus Christ. We can't affirm all viewpoints as legitimate because we, by faith, see God's glory in Jesus and then can discriminate between truth and error when we see how damaging error is, the consequences it has even to practical obedience, Christians can't be silent, they have to contend for the truth, which at times means repudiating error. So we need to recognize until Jesus comes back, one of the essential responsibilities of the church is to challenge and correct false teaching. And it's good for us to recognize this now There is not by the grace of God currently at CBC any significant doctrinal dispute. There have been issues in the past. Uh, There aren't any now. So it's a good time for us as a congregation to recognize a faithful church will engage in a repudiation of error when it rears its head. It's not gonna quibble over every little thing. That's not what I'm saying. But when there's a significant doctrinal issue at stake, a faithful church will contend against error for the truth. And when you're tempted to feel perhaps, oh, this is very narrow, unenlightened, bigoted, understand that the church at that point is doing exactly what Jesus has told her to do, namely contend for the truth, contend against error. If you see your church leaders seeing doctrinal deviation and looking the other way, find a new church. All right, part of an essential dimension of the leadership of the church, the responsibility, the responsibility of the church is to contend for truth by contending against error. So that's first. The need to confront error, to challenge error. Number two, we see that part of the problem with these false teachers is that they're misusing Scripture. They're misusing Scripture. And this is instructive. We're going to skip verse 5, we'll come back to it. Uh, and it says that these individuals have swerved from faith, from love, and they aspire to be teachers of the law, experts in the Mosaic commandments. Uh, Paul says there's, a, there's a, a bitter gap, an ironic gap between their aspirations to be teachers of the law and the fact that they make all sorts of bold assertions about things they don't understand. They are ignorant and aggressively, boldly ignorant. And part of the problem, verses 8 through 11, go on to offer a, a corrective to their misguided view of the law. So they're misusing the law, the Mosaic commandments. Paul's going to correct them. And the issue is how they're using it. Look at verse 8. The law in itself is good. It's from God. This is moral law given to the people of God through Moses. But the law is good if one uses it lawfully the way it should be used. Notice the pun, law Lawfully. The law is helpful if used correctly. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Just here refers to those who believe in Jesus and who are walking in obedience to him, those who have been declared by God righteous in the right. And the law is not in one sense for them. Now, we shouldn't conclude that that the Mosaic law has no abiding relevance for the believer, Paul will go on in this very letter to quote Deuteronomy as a justification for paying pastors. Right? So he, he looks to the Old Testament law to provide a principle for the arrangement of the church. In Ephesians 6, he'll quote the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments to tell uh, children to honor their father and mother. So the Mosaic law, from a certain standpoint, continues to provide wisdom for God's people. But from another standpoint... The law is not for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The law is for sinners and rebels. He goes on to describe all sorts of very serious sin against God. The question, though, is in what sense is the law for sinners? One possibility is that the law restrains evil. Who needs the law? Who needs to be told not to speed? Well, people who speed, right? As an example, as as an illustration, um, right? Lawbreakers need the law to, to show them, hey, if you do this, you're A, wrong, and there are consequences. So one possibility is that the law is given by God to restrain evil. Not in the sense that it restrains inner evil, that would be contradictory to what Paul says in Romans 7, Uh, Law can't do that, but perhaps it restrains outward evil by threatening certain consequences. And in that sense, the law is not for the just, the people who obey the law, but for the unjust. Possibly, I think it's more likely, however, that the law is for the ungodly in the sense that the law reveals, exposes, and deepens an awareness of of one's sinfulness. Uh, We see this, for example, in Romans uh, 3.20, where Paul says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The moral code deepens a sinner's awareness of how guilty they are before God, how morally wretched they are, and how they stand under the condemnation of God's law and need uh, a savior and need the grace of God. In my view, that's the most likely interpretation of what Paul is saying here. It's the wicked, those who are rebels, those who stand condemned, that need the law to expose their wickedness for what it is, And perhaps drive them to Jesus. And in that sense, it's not for the believer who has already come to experience the forgiveness of God. Who has already been declared just and has been freed from condemnation. So the law, to be used rightly, uh, addresses sinners. Exposes their sin. And Paul here describes all kinds of categories of sinners. Uh, He talks about those who strike their fathers and mothers. Uh, this is a, an, a great sin, an egregious sin in Scripture, to be contemptuous towards one's parents, to not submit, if you're a child, not to submit to mom and dad or honor your mom and dad. That is a significant sin before God. It's not a small thing. One basic responsibility that parents have is to teach their children early in life how to submit to parental authority because that's, that's of course, the foundation for submission to all other human authorities the kind of general contempt for authority that exists in our society is grounded in the failure of the family to insist upon uh, obedience and respect from their children. Uh, The modern posture of many parents is hands-off. I don't want to stifle Johnny's inherent goodness, something like this, Uh, but the biblical perspective is we need to get our hands in there, get our hands dirty, and mold this unregenerate bundle of appetites into a human person, to quote Lewis. Uh, not in a way that oppresses the child, of course, with wisdom, patience, uh, and, and wise discipline. Parents are, made, are, are intended to teach their children to walk with reverence for the Lord and submission to legitimate authority. Paul talks about the sexually immoral, a broad category for all those who deviate from God's design, which is sexual fulfillment in the context of a heterosexual marriage. That's, the, that's God's design. That's the place of fulfillment he speaks here of those who practice homosexuality. Uh, we need to be very clear, especially in the, in the context of our world, that homosexuality is a sin. It's not something to celebrate. Uh, it's not something to, um, to lift up as a good thing. Uh, it, it is wickedness before God, it is, it is unnatural. It is a deviation for, from God's good purposes for human sexuality. It is something that we need to call people to repent of. And we need to be very clear about that as believers. Uh, Having said that, however, however, our posture towards our homosexual colleagues' neighbors should be one of love. Now, the world around us says that's not possible. To love someone is to give unqualified acceptance of whatever they choose to do with their life. To love means no judgment. So if you're saying that I'm doing something that's immoral, well, then at that point you don't love me. And the Bible teaches us and I think experience teaches us, to distinguish those things. I can, I can disapprove of what you're doing and tell you that what you're doing is harmful and wicked in the sight of God and still care for you as a person. I mean, don't we do this all the time, even non-Christians? If you, if you have an alcoholic friend, uh, you love that friend, right? But you're not going to say, hey, keep drinking. I support your decision to, uh, to get drunk all the time. You say, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to correct you. This is not the right way to live. What you'll do, like what, an intervention? If your friend's hooked on drugs, you'll get a couple of you, uh, friends will come together, show up at the person's apartment and say, hey, this is, we, we care about you, so we're not going to give you unqualified approval in this terrible thing you're doing. We're going to ask you to turn from it. And so in practice, we see that, that we can make this distinction. You can love someone, and then precisely because you love them, say, hey, this is destructive, this is not helpful. We can love homosexual colleagues, neighbors, and so on, but not affirm the moral legitimacy of their lifestyles. Paul goes on to talk about liars, telling the truth, essential part of following God. We need to be people who love the truth, and we need to be careful in our speech that we don't misrepresent things. And all of this, all of these wicked things, and Paul is here reflecting the Ten Commandments, actually. That's that's behind what he says here. All of this is contrary to sound or Healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. It's the opposite of the, uh, the kind of life that God is calling us to. In this sound jo- doctrine, we determine what a healthy lifestyle looks like by the standard of the gospel, according to verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. This is the standard by which we can differentiate between good and evil. Well, let me go back to that initial point. I think it's very instructive, that the problem with these people is they're taking God's law, which is good, and they're using it badly or wrongly. They're twisting it. Uh, They're like that kid who takes his dad's uh, well-crafted fountain pen and goes outside and starts digging holes with it. Right, you can do it, but you shouldn't. That's not what a well-crafted fountain pen is for, right? Uh, And so also with Scripture, God has a certain intention for it, a certain design for how it should be used, and you need to use it in accordance with that design. One way in which we don't use Scripture according to the, the thing for which it was meant to be used is when we take peripheral, marginal, obscure things and make them central, and we take the central things and we make them marginal. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Years ago, um, when I was teaching at a high school, I worked with a guy uh, who came into teaching from the business world, from the corporate world, and he was very fascinated by leadership principles. And uh, he and I were talking one day And somehow, or other, the conversation uh, turned around to Jesus. And he said, yeah, I don't know, he said something like, I don't don't know about all the, you know, claims of Jesus to be God's son and all of that kind of stuff, but I do think we can learn a lot about leadership, servant leadership from Jesus and from the Gospels. That's not wrong so much as it really misses the point, right? The Gospels are not manuals on leadership, how to be an effective leader fundamentally, they are witnesses to the reality that God's Son became a human being to redeem us from our sins and reconcile us to God. Like, that's their central purpose. And to miss that is to miss everything. We want to make sure that we're using Scripture according to its intended use. This fundamentally is a book about Jesus, Describing what God has done in history to reconcile sinners like ourselves to himself through his son, Jesus. It works that out. This is helpful for, for those individuals, you meet them from time to time, that seem to have a real enthusiasm for everything that is obscure and exotic and esoteric in Scripture. Right? They, they, they want to talk to you about the, the eighth horn of the red dragon and what it means for geopolitics today. Right, they're interested in the peripheral. They're interested in the 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 obscure, Uh, and and they'll talk with enthusiasm on those themes all day. But when you when you bring their attention to the fundamental truths of Scripture, Jesus and his uh, atonement, death for sinners, and the love of God for sinners, and the need for salvation, and the glory of being adopted into God's family, their enthusiasm sort of diminishes. It's always a bad sign. Keep the first thing first. Assuming that you delight in God's Word and meditate on it, what is it that draws you to Scripture? Is it Jesus, those fundamental themes, or is it something else? I think it was Mart Lloyd-Jones in Preaching and Preachers who says, it's possible to be really interested in the Bible and kind of meticulously study it and analyze it and not really be interested in the Gospel. Careful that that's not you. Finally, what's the purpose of this correction? So we've seen the error. We've seen that Paul charges Timothy to correct the error. But what's the aim of this correction? This is verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. So look at verse 3. Charge certain persons. And then look at verse 5. The aim of our charge, so the charge mentioned in verse 3, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. False teaching was getting in the way of the fundamental Christian duty to love people for the glory of Jesus. This is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Notice that this love for others flows from a pure heart. Paul uh, writes in Titus, he speaks of the washing of regeneration, the inner purification produced by the Holy Spirit. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there is an inner renewal and washing that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. There is an inner renewal that enables us to love, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience. When we trust in Jesus, we know that our sins, all of them, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Uh, We know that our sins are past, taken from us through, through the work of Jesus, and so we have a clean conscience, a good conscience before God. And all of this comes through a sincere faith, an authentic and pure faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line. Wherever someone trusts in Jesus as their savior, and they experience this inward renewal, love for others necessarily and inescapably follows. There's no such thing as trusting in Jesus and not loving people. The sure sign of spiritual life is a love for other people. False teaching was getting in the way of this. Paul in uh, Titus describes what life was like pre-Christ. Titus 3.3, 3, he says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Life outside of Jesus, hated by others, hating one another. Life's about me, getting what I want, and if anyone gets in the way, so much the worse for them. But all of that changes, Paul says, when we, when we find Jesus, or better, are found by Jesus. When we trust in him, uh, we learn to love others and lead an other-oriented life. This was beautifully captured in a um, biography by Ian Murray of the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. Apparently, in his First church that Lloyd-Jones took, there was a, something of a revival that happened in that church and in that town. And uh, there was one boy who approached his teacher and said this, at school one afternoon, a teacher was told by a boy in her class, we had dinner, we had dinner today, miss. We had gravy, potatoes, meat, and cabbage and rice pudding. They had ra- rarely had such a meal at home before, and the reason followed. My father has been converted. So the money this man had formerly spent on drink when he got his pay on Fridays now came home for his wife and children. Instead of using money for himself and his own self-indulgence and his own pleasures, now, having come to know Jesus Christ, that money is spent not on self, but on others. And his son can eat well, meat and cabbage, because his father has come to know Jesus Christ. That's what true faith looks like. It gets you out of yourself. Causes you to become attuned towards others, and you live a life of sacrificial service for them. So any view of the Christian life that's all about just your own rigorous, isolated spirituality, you and God praying, meditating on Scripture, studying, but you have no vision for taking those things and channeling them in love towards other people, there's something deeply unbiblical and misguided about that vision of the Christian life. Yes, we have communion with God, we seek Him in prayer, we meditate on His Word, But but that communion with the Lord should drive us towards other people. Is that that characterizing your life? Love seeks to know others. Love has a taste for for others. It's not just that if you love someone, you're going to do your duty. Uh, You're going to serve them because you're supposed to. Yeah, there's an element of truth to that. But when you, when you have a large heart and you love people, you want to get to know them. You enjoy them. Not just doing things for them, because you have to, but you have, um, as one author puts it, a taste for the other, a delight in other selves. It's a bad sign if your habitual response to people is to, to find fault with them, things to dislike. Those who know the love of God will characteristically find things to like in others, They will seek to know others. They will linger after the church service and seek to connect with their brothers and sisters, open up their home to others, because those who love seek to know. Love is concerned for others. Look at the Apostle Paul's attitude towards his beloved Thessalonian believers, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He had to leave that church in Thessalonica prematurely, but he writes to them and says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I was worried about you. I was worried Satan would tempt you. And this was a burden to me. And, I, and, I, and now that I hear that you're fine from uh, Timothy, I'm relieved and I rejoice. When you love someone, their misery, their hardships are not a matter of indifference, but a matter of concern. If you see, you see a brother or sister drifting, they don't show up to church. They're struggling in some way. You don't look at that with apathy. You look at it with concern when you love. You call them up. You encourage them. You do what you can for them. When you see someone floundering, um, overworked or stressed out or whatever, you look for ways to serve them. When you love someone, you're concerned about them. And finally, when you love, you sacrifice. You sacrifice for others. You take trouble for others. Love means if you're a wife, you take some of, the to, some of the items on your husband's to-do list and put them on your to-do list, and vice versa, right? Love means burdening yourself to bring relief to others. And maybe one of the most important ways we can love as moderns who are really preoccupied with productivity, efficiency, You know, we're busy, we've got lots of things going on, we've all got our calendars that we're trying to manage and try to squeeze every drop of productivity that we can. Maybe one essential way that we as moderns can love people is just through the sacrifice of time, being present, engaging, talking. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued in this regard by by a little-known author named C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was this, you know, distinguished thinker Uh, Writer of you know well-known books in his day, busy guy both at home and in the university, but he committed to answering the steady stream of mail he would get from people—not just adults but kids. So here's this busy academic, distinguished thinker, taking the time to write countless letters to kids, to the nobodies of the world, if you like. Not that we think of them as nobodies, of course. There's this wonderful little collection of his letters, and he writes to this little girl named Joan. I think he wrote her 28 letters over the course of 20 years. Just like an American girl writing to this English professor. And there's a steady stream of correspondence over 20 years. Just remarkable. But here's what he writes to her in one of these letters. Dear Joan, thank you for your nice letter of May 25th. I, too, like opening my eyes underwater, both in the sea and in my bath but one must not do it in a bath if it is very hot because it is bad for them. I used to use fountain pens, but somehow I don't like them now. It is dreadfully cold, wet summer here, even the squirrels are depressed. Uh, uh, I quote that because of of its large-hearted, cheerful humanity. And it's the the kind of quality that our faith in Jesus should produce. Uh, We should be the kinds of people who have time for children and write them letters where we look at the world from their vantage point and connect with them. Uh, Christian love is sacrificial love. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how much self-mastery you have, how great your knowledge and insight are, and how productive you are if you don't have love. If you don't have love, you are nothing by biblical standards. Regardless of how impressive you are to the outside world, how great your skill, how... Great your wealth and productivity. If you don't have love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you're nothing. Is this central to your walk with the Lord? What about difficult people? Not everybody's a Joan. Right? You just pen a letter and all is well and good. There's some difficult people that God calls us to love. How do we do it? Well, we love until we love. And by that I mean, uh, we, don't wait for, uh, f- we don't wait for the right emotions to come, and then we love. We love by means of action, and the emotions catch up. So if you find someone difficult, serve them, love them, connect them practically, do, do loving things, and you find your affection for them growing. I've certainly experienced this in my life. People that I found very difficult, not that pleasant initially, just because of, for a variety of reasons I had to connect and work and serve i find i found myself growing in my affection for them i'm sure you've experienced this um love until you love act lovingly until the emotions catch up but whatever you do consider this more carefully than you do how practically can you grow in your love for other people and for jesus what steps can you take Jesus Christ lived on the principle of emptying himself for others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, that though he was rich, yet he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's how Jesus is. Empties himself to fill others. And that's the pattern that we're called to exhibit as well. So out of love for Jesus, love one another. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have been well loved by you and indeed we pray that you would deepen our awareness of your love. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would be marked not mainly by, for our knowledge or gifts or, or whatever. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be defined by a real love for you and a real love for one another. We confess that this is unobtainable in our own strength and so we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to produce that in us. Amen.